welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only gaming podcast where you walk around the great game store of opportunity with childlike amazement. I'm your host for this evening, Mr. Mark Teske, along with my co-host, Jacob Glaffenstein. Jake, how are you tonight? I'm doing wonderfully. He used my full name. I always don't like it when people use my full name because I'm worried I'm in trouble. <laughs> I did not use your middle name. If only I knew your middle name. Oh, it's Scott. I'll have to out myself. My name is Jacob Scott. There it is. <laughs> now we know everything. Next time we have a bone of contention on this podcast, I will refer to you as Jacob Scott. Oh, God. I'm having flashbacks to <laughs> my mother with the spoon. Let's start this podcast off on a really good note. We'd like to thank all the new listeners who have joined since our last episode with Craig of the Train Rush. We really appreciate all of your listens. And like always, the best thing you can do to us to have the gaming moguls grow is to tell a friend about us. We always like to see more people and talk to more people that like to listen to us. You bet. And, uh, you know, I can't promise you we're going to have train content every episode, but we definitely talk about it. So welcome aboard. We should also start by saying that we are going to do something pretty fun, Mark. And this is the first time we've ever done this. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Yeah, so we're going to give a, away a copy of one of our favorite games by one of our favorite publishers. We are going to be giving away a copy of Startups by Oink Games. Yeah, this is great. Uh, you can hear us talk about it back on episode four and also in our later episodes about our top games and so forth, where this is a, a tiny box game that packs a surprising amount of interaction and a little bit of nastiness. And hey, we want to share a copy with you right now. So how do we go about giving this game to somebody, Jake? All you have to do is tag us on a post on either Instagram or Twitter. So actually do at Gaming Moguls and then do a hashtag Gaming Moguls giveaway. And to win, you'll just need to have your entries into us by 1159 p.m. on Friday, May 17th. And after that, we'll randomly choose one. You can have two entries if you do a tag us both on Instagram and Twitter. The main reason we're doing this, too, is we just kind of don't know who's really following us out there. So we'd love to kind of interact and see what social media is about. I don't know if I'm following the right people. Sounds great. Yeah. And uh, make sure that we've got contact with you out there and a great chance for you to get it, get that game into your hands and play it with your friends. Yes, absolutely. And feel free to be creative about what you post, whether it be a picture of your game collection. I love to look at check on my collection posts or pictures of your favorite small box game. I don't know. Just be creative. Send us a funny picture. We are going to draw this randomly, but I'll give you extra moral credit if you somehow work a dad joke into a game post. Please do. We are also going to give an update on t-shirts and our MogulCon. We got a couple things coming up. One of the biggest ones is we've talked at several times about us having a gaming convention here in the Minneapolis area for fans of the show. We're calling that MogulCon. That is still moving forward. We're honing in on some dates. And right now we kind of got it narrowed down to midwinter or mid-spring. How's that for a <laughs> really targeted, but super vague. You know, pros and cons to both of them. And we're really trying to get as many opinions as we can and really narrow that down. We're actually to the point, though, we're looking at locations and looking at costs involved with that so that we can call a date soon because we know that some of you would like to travel here for that. And we want to get word out as soon as possible so that you can make travel arrangements. Absolutely. It should be fun. We're thinking like a really great game playing, small, fun con. Yeah, we're actually kind of assuming this is like a gaming retreat. So, you know, the Gaming Moguls Gaming Retreat. I like that. Ooh, that's fancy. So premium. And then finally, finally, we have the T-shirt. I have been working with the printer to get a mock-up so we can actually post on the website. But follow us on social media to make sure that you will be informed when we actually end up releasing it and opening orders. 
but it should be in the next couple of weeks. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing to wear to MogulCon or other gaming conventions? Oh my God. Layers upon layers. All right. <laughs> enough, enough, enough administration stuff. Let's actually talk about some games, Mark. What did we play this week? Man, you know, this has been one of the better gaming couple of weeks I've had in quite a while. Yeah, it just worked out that we got a chance to play a lot of games at home as well as with other game groups. So that gives us a lot to talk about today. The first one, I think let's talk about the elephant in the room, or shall we say the lovely tree in the middle of the room? Are we going to embarrass me again? So in our last episode with Craig from the train rush, listen to it. He chose a game that punched above his weight called Arboretum by Dan Kassar. And I had played this game about a year and a half ago, and I really had tried to like it. I had bought a copy at Gen Con and I had played it six times, but it just didn't really jive with me and ended up putting it on the for trade pile. Turns out I had played a rule wrong and it made such a huge implication. So the good friend of the show, Dennis, brought Arboretum to a game day that we had on Friday and we were able to play it. And oh, man, is this game wonderful. (laughs) It's amazing how that one rule made such a huge issue. I'm pretty sure I didn't make it through the rules explanation before deciding that I needed to own that as well. Yeah, me too. It's just the game felt a little bit too short with our rules issue. But with the new fixed actual way you're supposed to play with the draw and discard piles, it's so neat. And I am fully endorsing this game. It's one of my favorite small box games I've been playing the last while. And I think I'm going to keep on adding it to my game bag. This is one that I introduced to my family immediately as well. And boy, they loved it just as much as we did. They they loved the theme. They loved the trees. And they really loved the difficult mental decisions involved with kind of every step along the way. I mean, this is a great game for our family and for our game group. Agreed. So it was awesome to play. Thank you so much, Dennis, for teaching us the right rules to Arboretum by Dan Kassar. And our copies are by Renegade Games. Why don't we give it a quick little mogul scale? I'm saying it's a one or two C. I'm going one D. This one's actually, it's heavy, man. This one's hard. It's hard to do well at this game. There's a lot of awful decisions on this one. So I'm going one D. I can, you know, maybe a heavy one C. Let's do that. That seems fair. Let's do one C. That seems that seems like a fair average evaluation. I think Craig's was a one E. Maybe. Yeah, that's you went really hardcore. It's strategic, but I don't know that I'd put it on the same strategic level as as go or something like that. But it's heavy. No question about it. Absolutely. That was Arboretum. I am going to put my hair shirt on here quick and mea culpa for my little bit of uh, mockery here. We'll just get that out of the way right up front. So normally, Jake, I take a lot of pride in making sure that my game teaches are on point. I prepare in advance. Agreed. I read the rules. I really make sure that I can walk in and just explain the game and be able to answer anything and make make sure that everybody has a great experience playing that game. And I failed in flames on that uh, last Friday. You most certainly did. Yeah. You most certainly did, Mark. I'm happy that I'm not the only one that's outing themselves on the podcast here. I know. It doesn't happen that often. I mean, I've certainly had some other good ones to balance that off, but... The game that I didn't do such a great job on was Railroad Revolution by Marco Canetta and Stefania Nicolini. It's a game I'd played one other time, but it'd been a couple of months since we played. Railroad Revolution is a game where ostensibly you're moving east to west, you're building stations, you're building train tracks, and you're using workers and trading them in to take different actions and then doing better actions depending on what style worker you use. Along the way, you're investing in the Western Union and trying to build up victory points. It really is a pretty generic Euro with a somewhat meaningless theme. It's not really a train game, would you think, Jake? Oh, I'd completely agree. It's not a train game at all. It just has a trains in the West theme to it. Yeah. The big challenge here was, though, that our friend Dennis had a 90-minute 
our deadline. And I remember it not taking that long and thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. I can teach this one and away we go. The combination of teaching it a little bit cold and teaching it in a rush was kind of a disaster. And I'm not sure anybody had a good experience. Yeah. And I also think coupled with that, we were going to play Stevenson's Rocket, but you had a bit of uh, anxiety maybe about not wanting to play that game. Um, I don't know if that's the right term for it, but you, you're, you're a little apprehensive to play it. Yeah. And you reach for this one instead. And I probably should have vetoed it halfway through the rules and set up where I was like, I don't even know what's going on because you do a really good job of teaching games. I usually can understand what's going on. And I've played so many Euro games. I can usually kind of figure it out by the iconography on the board. And for some weird reason, you explain this to me. And I don't know if it was a combination of getting a few rules wrong that made the iconography oh, kind definitely. of obtuse. We scored the last game completely wrong. The last round was completely scored wrong. Yeah. Just because we didn't really understand what we were doing. There was a couple of things I absolutely explained wrong the first time through that did not match up with the iconography, which led a lot of confusion. I finally did get it fixed and straightened out to turn or two into the game. But by then, nobody knew what to believe. Right. And I'd like to play it again because it was pretty bog standard. I mean, if you wanted to play it, I'd play it again. But I feel like we just failed so much at it and... I couldn't digest the rules. I think it probably deserves another play before we really give an opinion on it one way or another. Yeah, I I don't know. And maybe this might go afoul of the opportunity cost thing where it's a fine game, but maybe are there better things to play? I don't know. And that's something we'll chat about later on in this episode a little bit is our feelings on opportunity cost. But it may not be the greatest game in the world. And I know for a fact there are some concerns around there being just straight up broken strategies in the Western Union down below that if you just rush that thing that you're virtually unstoppable. So that may be another challenge that we really need to observe that maybe this isn't the greatest game. Well, that was Railroad Revolution by Marco Canetta, Stefania Nicolini and published by What's Your Game? And by the way, just for a little bit of background, Jacob... Not going to let you get away with just referencing my apprehension for Stevenson's Rocket and having everybody think I'm crazy. (laughs) I actually do want to play Stevenson's Rocket. I really do. My problem is, is I got hurt. I got hurt in the past and I have some biases from that. And I know this is a different game, but I have had some very bad times playing a game called Tigris and Euphrates in the past. To the point where I actually just gave my copy to J-Mac because, man, it's not a game for me. Like, I recognize what an unbelievably good achievement in game design it is, and I absolutely understand why people would love this one. And the combination of area control and dry strategy and take that just hurts my soul. And, you know, the first thing you said is you're like, oh, yeah, it's kind of like Tigers and Euphrates. And I went, ooh. Wrong thing to say, buddy. Wrong thing to say. Yeah. And and I think that I probably should have approached it from a better angle of this is really a train game with that you're building routes in it versus it's not really a tile laying game compared to the other ones. And I haven't played Tigers and Euphrates, so I don't quite know how similar they are. But it to, to me, I thought the game was very thematic. Um, Stevenson's Rocket, pardon me. I thought Stevenson's Rocket was very thematic. And just that little bit of theme helps make it not as dry of an affair. So maybe it'd be something that you'd like. Nope, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's just that eh, it's one of those that I thought that we'd be able to have more fun doing something else. And I was wrong. Well, let's move on to the next game we played on Friday with Mr. Dennis, which was an expansion to a game that we both really like. We played Welcome to Zombies and we played that on Good Friday. Welcome to is published by Deepwater Games and designed by Benoit Turpin. So we played the zombie themed expansion board to this game. They recently held a Kickstarter with four different expansion maps to it. 
that have slight little variations with maybe a rule or two difference here and there just to make the game a little more thematic towards a certain aspect of the game. And so in this game, there are little zombie hordes that pop up every once in a while and tear down some of the buildings that you've built. I really liked it. What did you think about it, Mark? I personally thought it was fine. I thought it was okay. I don't know that I would ever pick to play it over the base game. Like it was an interesting twist on the rules where every once in a while zombies would come marching in from the sides and take over locations and kind of screw up what your plans are for that street. I had two problems with it. Number one being that, like I said, I don't think it made the game better. And number two, it's a night zombie theme on the board and you've got a pencil and most of the board is either very dark or it's black. So using the pencils out of the box and trying to fill in the fences that you've made and the house numbers on there, it was unreadable. So I finally just had to bail out, grab a marker from my game bag and use that to write on there because I couldn't see what I was writing on the board. It was so dark. It was stupidly dark. And that's probably a poor decision. Me and you both love when games are pretty and nice to look at, but I never like that when it's at the expense of readability. And this one definitely went a little bit too far. And I think it's just because they try to make it all spooky and gray and green to be all zombie themed. And I think that was a poor decision. Um, I need to laminate out some copies so we can actually use dry erases with it. Maybe that'll make it a little more easy to be able to be read, but they missed the mark on that. I'm kind of on the opposite end when it comes to liking the expansions versus the base game. So I just checked. I've played this game nine times. And one of them being the expansion. I think I'd always reach for an expansion board just because it's slightly different than the base game. And I'm getting a little bored of Welcome 2. It kind of plays the same way each time, or at least I play it the same way each time where I do kind of one row at a time, which is not good. And I think just adding the slight bit of variety with the tweaking of the rules will help make it come out more often and that I can keep on playing the game. It'll be interesting because I do want to try out all four expansion boards. So that'll get me at least four or five, maybe eight more plays of this game to try them out a couple of times. But then after that, I wonder if I'll want to go back to the base game or if there'll be one expansion board I'll like more than the others. I I do like the idea of expansions in Welcome to because like you, I think it's a great game and I've played it a bunch of times. So, you know, I'm definitely down with the idea of improving it and making it better and doing additional things. I'm just not sure I like the zombie one that much. Fair. There is a doomsday one, which might just be the same kind of level of spooky welcome to without it being too much. There's also a winter themed one and a Halloween themed one that I have. So it'll be kind of fun to play those. There was one other one that was available that we should have played. The Easter one? For some weird reason, it didn't come out. I don't know. I don't know why I didn't buy it or if it was an add on or something. I've seen it on BGG, but I thought I kickstarted all of them, but. I only got four, so I don't know if I have to send an email to the publisher if I missed it or if I just pledged for the wrong thing. I'll look into that. Hey, so how's that all fit in your box? Oh, my God. Don't even bring it up. So (laughs) my new pet peeve in gaming is I love small boxes, but I don't like it when there's any the the, the box should hold all of the game components. Well, probably 80 to 90 percent of the boxes that I have on my shelf could be shrunk to fit the components. This is one that should have been enlarged or made bigger so that I can actually fit all the components. I think I have about an inch and a half of box lift off the top if you put all the components in there. I'm going to have to actually laminate up some of the sheets so I can leave the rest in a drawer somewhere so it can actually fit the dang game in the box. It's stupid. That is a great opportunity for another Kickstarter by the Welcome to People, the, uh, the Mini Mansion box expansion. Or I can just have my good friend Mark laser cut me up a box, right? Also a possibility, yes. 
Woo. And I'm hitting the same issue right now with the Norwegians expansion for A Feast for Odin, something I'm very excited about. But I have a lovely insert for that one, and it fits tight. I mean, there is no extra space in that box once there's an organizer in there. And there for sure is not going to be a expansion packed into the same box. So I'm pretty much stuck right. carrying two boxes anytime I want to play the Norwegians. So that actually does bring me to a question that I don't know if we've ever talked about on air. Mm. Do you get rid of your expansion boxes or do you keep them? So like, let's say you have an expansion <laughs> to XYZ game. Do you put them all in the same original box or do you throw the box away? Uh, yes. <laughs> what I do is I, I, I put all the expansion stuff in the original box if it fits. And then I take the expansion box and I put it in the back room on a shelf for about six months until I run out of space and have another expansion box to put in there. Then I throw it away. Oh, so it's just like a delayed cache of... uh different boxes that you don't need i think for some reason i'm going to decide that maybe i don't like the expansion and resell it or need room need the box back to put stuff in later on or i don't know and then six months later i go yeah i guess i really didn't need that and i actually throw it away interesting so i guess that makes it easier for you to print and play games you can just put like wraps on the boxes that you have or Use a small. Oh, one. yeah, I have thought about that for sure. Interesting. Yeah, I throw away all the boxes because I am pretty minimalist. I know collecting board games is not the most minimalist thing to do, but I love getting rid of things and especially when they're frivolous. So if I can fit all the expansions in one box, I will. And it actually has limited me from buying other expansions if I don't think it's going to fit in the box. So that's uh, welcome to Zombies Edition by Benoit Torpin and Deepwater Games. We also got a chance to pull a few old favorites off the shelf, too, over the past couple of weeks. And one that came off is a game that I bought back when I was in a thinky filler sort of acquisition mode where I wanted games that were a deep, full playing experience yet fit in less than an hour, but were also bigger than a 10 minute small box experience. I think that Roland Wrights have occupied a lot of the same niche that the thinky fillers do. And therefore, some of those thinky filler games really haven't gotten played much over the past several months. So I decided it was time to pull out Alexander Fister's Isle of Sky and give it another whirl. I forgot how fun that game was. Yeah, I was really sad I was able to miss this one. You guys were texting me pictures of all the games that you'd played, and I was very jealous, to say the least, because I've only played Isle of Sky once, but I remember really liking it and saying, Mark, you should bring that one more often. And then I haven't played it in about a year and a half. Yeah, and it was actually nominated for the uh, Kenner Spiel des Jahres back in 2016. So lots of people think this is a pretty great game. So quick background, it's a game where you're tile laying, much like Carcassonne, where you're trying to build a little uh, empire on the Isle of Sky, And you get points for arranging your things in certain ways, like if you have whiskey barrels that are connected on roads back to your castle, or how many sheep you have in your little domain, or something like that. And it's played over a series of rounds where different things score in different rounds and different combinations of those things score every round. So there's ultimately eight rounds, eight different combinations. And the interesting part is that those tiles are actually acquired by pricing the tiles that you have and either buying them for others or pricing them high enough that nobody buys them. And then which case you get them and get to place them in your little domain. Just lots of interesting decisions and lots of interactivity. Yeah, I remember really like it. The art's very charming as well, and it's just a nice experience. And it's kind of fun that you're doing a tile laying game, but correct correct me if I'm wrong, but you're only playing on your own little network, right? You're making your own little island. And I thought I thought that was neat. It seemed like everybody else, you're always playing on like a shared board. And that's fun, too. But having your own little tile board is fun. We don't play enough tile playing game. No, I agree. And the interactivity in that one really comes in where you with the pricing of the tiles, you get three tiles. 
you put prices on them. If somebody buys them, you get your money back and their money. If nobody buys them, you spend your money and get that tile. So if there's a tile of yours that you specifically want, you just price it high and then keep it. Otherwise, you price it to sell. And trying to figure out what people will pay for those tiles is really where the core of the game is, as well as good tile placement. Absolutely. And knowing what everybody wants for things, which is always fun. I love trying to figure out what my friends want to do and pricing things accordingly. Bring it again, Mark. I'd like to play it. Right on target. 45 minutes, too. That fits in a lot of spots. Absolutely. What would you give it on the mogul scale there, Mark? Mogul scale, the Isle of Sky, I would call a 2C. 2C. Maybe Perfect. a 2B. It's pretty, yeah, yeah, but tile placement, there's a lot of scratching right your head around. Yeah, I'm sticking with 2C. Yeah, a little bit of obtusity, obscurity. Sure. Not being able to really understand what's going on with what people want. Isle of Sky, that's great. Uh, the next one that we pulled out, also in that 45-minute category. That Jake regrettably had to miss. Oh, <sighs> yeah. Well, you introduced me to this game, and I quickly picked it up. A uh, little shout-out to our friend Tom, 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 Tom for designing a wonderful game in Northern Pacific, now published by Rio Grande Games. Ostensibly a train-themed game, but really it's a pure abstract. It, the idea is that you're completing a rail network from east to west, and you're making bets on where the rail network would go. So you're actually going out and putting investments in towns down the rail line. You can never fork them, so you need to correctly predict where it's going. Or you can lay routes to actually make it go a certain direction. At the end of the round, you count up the points in cubes that you have left. Those cubes are actually your investments. And you score it up. You play it over three rounds, and whoever has the highest score is the winner in that one. Each round takes about 10 minutes, 30 minutes for the entire game. Man, it's great. And this this game has a really interesting interactive facet to it, too, Jake. Yeah. And so what's cool about it for us, too, is it's in Minneapolis, which is fun. And what's so interesting about the interactivity is the first time you play and actually draw the line from Minneapolis all the way to Seattle, you're kind of feeling out what's happening in the game and who you're going to try to make do your bidding. And then you realize, oh, I need to start making sure I know what the person to my left is going to do. So I can ride on their coattails and make sure that they'll do what I want it to do or something along those lines so I can hop onto their investments. And it's fun because it kind of has that emergent gameplay where we like where we're like, oh, this isn't much. And then towards the last time, it's really cutthroat and you're really making sure you can cut to the spots and someone might just spite you just to spite you to go somewhere else that they have investments and then you can spite them back. It's just really fun out of I think it's one sheet of rules and um, you could probably explain this game in two minutes oh, easily it's and the it's... simplest game on earth but boy once you start realizing that the entire game is getting other people to do your bidding or to leverage people's own self-interest it really becomes fascinating at that point realizing that well he the person after me really wants this to go to Topeka that's really important to him so therefore I'm I know he's going to lay tile to go he's going to lay a track to go there so I'm going to invest in Topeka because I guarantee he's going there and surprise surprise he does and both of our investments pay out and if you can manage that, figuring out what the people in front of you and behind you need to do in their own self-interest, you'll do well in the game. And I, that's really great. I completely agree. So I do have a question for you guys because I was not able to play with you. Did you play the original rules or did you play with the big investment cubes and then not randomized turn order? <laughs> yeah, controversial conversation on this one. So, you know, we have heard some opinions by the designer of the original designer of this game, Mr. Tom Russell of Hollenspiel Games 
that the published version isn't exactly as he he intended it in two major ways. And we may be misquoting this one, so grant us some slack on this. But uh, as we understand it, there were not the double-sized cubes, which are like double investments. And also there's a uh, randomized turn order that goes on that too. And we didn't play with either one of them. Having said that, I can see randomized turn order being interesting and important. So you're not always trying to gank the person before you and after you. But I personally like the double size investment cubes. I think it's fun to put a big bet down and see if you can't really make that thing pay off. I think that adds to the game. I agree. I like the big bet, but I'd like to try the random turn order. And I think it'd be fun almost as an icebreaker game to start the game night with if you have some newer Mm -hmm. players. So you can kind of mix it up and really feel each other out. So I'm not just exactly, as you said, crapping on the person on my left or trying to get the person on my right to do my bidding, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a solid hit with everybody that played. Uh, of course, Stephen waxed us at it like Stephen typically does. Of course. Of course. He's he's figured out games in a way that we cannot even understand. He's at a he's at a level yep. deeper than us. So anyway, that was Northern Pacific by Tom Russell and Rio Grande Games. What would you give it as a mogul scale? This is a 1C, I think. 1C? I'm giving it a 1B+. plus. Sure, that is a little on the thinky side, but yeah, it's a 1C, 1B, somewhere right in there, for sure. Well, why don't we talk about some games that I was actually lucky enough to play with you guys this week? Sounds great. I was in Toronto last week, and we were actually able to play some games on Wednesday night this week, which is awesome. And we first started the game night off with a game of Gugong by Andrea Stedding and published by Game Brewer. So why don't you tell us what's going on in Gugong, Mark? We have talked about this on several different occasions, so I'll give you a fairly brief recap for those that weren't on board for that. Gugong is a game set in China in 1570 where bribes are punishable by death, and so therefore an elaborate set of gift-giving has evolved where if I give you, Mr. Government Official, a better gift than you give me back, then I can reasonably expect that you will uh, act in my self-interest. It's a deliciously produced game. I have the deluxified Kickstarter version of it, and they went all out on this thing. And it's a delight to look at and to play. And it's easily my number one played game so far in 2019. I've played it with just about everybody I know, and it's gone over pretty well with everybody. And you're kind of new to this party, Jake. So this was your second play? Yeah, it's funny. I feel like we always miss out on the midweight euros of each other's collection. Because usually that's the time where we break up the game group. If we ever have six people at our game group, we're going to split it apart and play two different tables. It's usually we'll play some shorter midweight stuff then. If we're going to play something really long, it'll usually be a scheduled day. Or if it's really short, we'll kind of mix around more. But I didn't get to play this, and I've only actually played it twice now. But I'm a really big fan. Um, I played it once at three and once at five. And what was amazing about my play at five is I think we wrapped it up in 90 minutes, including teach. Yeah, lickety split. I mean, that you can play a five person game and wrap it up in 90 minutes and everybody had a fun meaningful game experience love it it really didn't drag down this is the first time i played it at five and it played just as well as everything else in fact one of the interesting side points i thought is that there was a greater diversification in strategies being employed during the game just because there was more players that you know you couldn't have all five people trying to do jade for example or all five people doing the you know the expedition route or the shipping route or whatever else you needed to really diversify what you were doing on that and it was fun to watch that different approach to how the game was played well and also the end game scoring thing was jade so i have played this game twice and in the first three player game that we played not one person tried to go for jade as a viable strategy 
But with the scoring opportunity towards the five player game where you could get two points for every jade up to five jade, I think three of us actually ended up doing the jade strategy, which made it more interesting. And I think it catapulted you to victory there, Mark. It did. Yeah, I ended up just between the jade and the jade tile. I think I had 25 points or something. Yeah, because I had 10 points from the bonus tile and 15 points from the jade. And uh, that ended up giving me the victory in, you know, 42 points or something like that, nicking you out by two points. Proud of you. You did great. Good for it you. It was a great night, actually, across the board in gaming. We'll get back to that. But <laughs> I've been on a tear lately. <laughs> You've just been crushing it, Mark. Um, but yeah, Gugong was great. I really like it. Um, I don't think we need to delve any more into it, but I thought it was a good game. I think this is one that now kind of everybody knows how to play it. So, boy, if you think we could get into that 90 minute game fast, well, I think this is one we could fit in in a lot of different cases and play often. All right. That is Gugong by Andreas Stedding and Game Brewer. On to the next game, a game that I actually taught, which we haven't played in a while. I'm speaking of Chicago Express, published by Queen Games and designed by Harry Wu, who is really a.k.a. John Bohr. Of Winsome Winsome Games. Yep. Correct. And so what you're doing in Chicago Express is you are all investors investing in five different rail lines that's kind of from that Midwest part that's from eastern Pennsylvania all the way to Chicago, Ohio, Indiana, all that kind of juicy stuff. And what you're doing on your turn is you're going to choose one of three actions. Certain ones will not become available if they've been taken too often. You can either extend a rail line, you can auction off new shares of rail lines, or you can improve certain hexes that will do certain things for different rail lines. And what's neat about this game is it is really fast. We had about an hour left to play games, and I was like, let's play something a little meatier instead of Welcome To or something of its ilk. Let's play Chicago Express. And with setup and teardown and a rules explanation, we hopped right into it. One thing that was really weird is, Mark, you've played this game with me a few times, I believe. And you actually own a copy, right? <laughs> Correct. Yes. And it was another player's at the table's first time ever playing this game, Dennis. And I believe it's one of his first train games as well with shares and money and all that stuff. And Dennis understood the rules immediately after I explained it and was immediately in the strategy of it, evaluating everything. And you, who I've played this game with three or four times at least, had to pull out the rules halfway through the explanation and halfway through the game. You're like, I just don't get it. I'm like, Mark, I've played this with you and I taught it well. What's going on here? Yeah, my challenge was that I understood the rules just fine. The mechanics of, you know, how does a turn structure work? What do I do? What can I place where? Perfect sense. No problem. I could not see the forest through the trees. I, I was like, how do we actually scratch head? Where, how do we win? Where, where, what am I trying to do here? <laughs> obviously, by you know, right. obviously buying shares and making routes better is good. You know, no question there. But specifically, how do I want to do that at the expense of somebody else? I I wasn't seeing it, and I actually needed to just stop and review the uh, stuff quick. So I, I took a look at the rules and pretty quickly jumped back in and figured out what was going on and then remembered uh, how to do it. And then you remembered actually how to win because you won this one, too. The one kind of misstep we did with Chicago Express here is I didn't stress the end game conditions enough. And there's four end game conditions. You run out of trains, you run out of stocks, you Detroit gets higher, you run out of houses to place on the board. And the game end crept up on us. And I think three people overpaid pretty significantly for stocks, knowing when the end game was happening. Sure. Myself being included in one of those. So it was a little bit of oops, I lost. Oops, Mark won because three people of the four overpaid for stuff. And we maybe got 50% return on investment for what we paid. And then the game ended. Well, and there's also a factor of I also sort of made a point in making sure that people took those actions. Right. And but I mean, even your second to last bid on two of them was way too high. 
Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't have paid more than a dollar. I mean, it's it's a zero sum kind of thing. And that might be a bigger complaint about this game is we play pretty quick as a game group. And this game really is if everybody had a sheet of paper and could really write down valuations and maybe explain the strategy of it would work a little better. But that's kind of not fun. Like, I always imagine that maybe Mark would pull this out with his family. But thinking on it now, it's going to take a little while before your family really realizes how to properly evaluate some of the shares and whether or not it's worth it. And sometimes when I've I've explained this game and played it with more casual gamers, people really overpay. And I'm talking about towards the last 80% of the game. Well, maybe they'll get a run twice. People will pay six, four to six times how much it is going to pay out this upcoming dividends phase. So like there is no chance they're going to be able to get that money back. And I don't really know how to tell people like sit on your money. It's going to be fine. Don't reinvest in it. No, I I agree. I I agree 100 percent. The challenge on this game is determining what a fair value for something is. And that is where you win and lose the game, because you don't actually get any value back from your shares at the end of the game. They're worth nothing. It's literally only the money that you're sitting at in your pocket. So if you just spent a whole bunch on a share and if that share goes up, that doesn't matter if you never pay dividends on it. And trying to determine what the correct amount is to pay is really the challenge of the game. And that's one that I actually think is probably a bridge too far for my family at this point. And like, I think they could mechanically figure out how to play the game without any difficulty at all. But would they enjoy it and would they know how to what to pay on stuff? I don't know. I think they'd just get in bidding fights and pay whatever it <laughs> whatever it takes to win. Right. And you ha- you're sitting on so much cash that can happen in this game. Yeah. And I do think, you know, did I overpay on the last one or two things? Sure. But I wanted to monopolize that one rail line, which I think ultimately did pay off because I quickly thereafter went to Chicago and got the extra payout. Likewise, too, with the um, whatever the railroad is that starts when you get over there. Uh, the Wabash. Yeah. Did I get all my money out of that one? I think I did. I think I made a couple of bucks ultimately because I did get the extra payoff for rolling it into Chicago, which is, you know, that extra bonus makes a big difference. I did actually think the game, everybody thought the game was going to last longer than it did, but we were so aggressively selling off shares that it ended the game quickly. Anywho, that is uh, Chicago Express. I really still like it. I think I'm going to try to play it more often, but it does go down the end of, is it fun for me to be a strategy guide to a table full of people while they're playing a game? Probably not. So, yeah, I would like to play it again, too. I think playing it with people that know how to play it and, you know, have have had a chance to see it again would would raise the level of play a lot. That was Chicago Express by Harry Wu slash John Borer by published by Queen Games. So one of the big challenges with all these games, and we alluded to it earlier, with especially with like Railroad Revolution and so forth, is that, you know, we have families, we have jobs, we have life and we have a reasonably sized game collection. So, boy, anytime you pull out a game and play it, invariably, it's going to be at the expense of playing something else. So how do you manage that? That's something that Jake and I actually chat about quite a bit and looking at it, the how do you manage the the opportunity cost of playing a specific game? Might be a fine game, might be an interesting game, but is there, does it carry too much opportunity cost versus one that you already know and love? Jake, I know you have lots of thoughts on this topic. Right. Well, it's because I, I talk your ear off about it. This is legitimately, I think, the thing in gaming that me and you discuss the most. Because me and you are pretty productive members of society. You more than me. You you have a lot to do. You have a family, you have kids, you have everything. And we are able to game a lot. But it is not as much as we would like to. Oh, yeah. Um, We've mentioned this in other episodes. Like, this is a trickle feed, right? Let me be square up on this one. When I'm not gaming... There's a portion of my brain that's thinking about, so what if I was gaming right now? 
<laughs> I know, me too. And so we're lucky enough to play every Wednesday for the most part. I'll miss maybe one out of every like six weeks. And then on top of that, we usually get a game weekend in or like a game day on a Saturday or Sunday every other to every three weeks. Yep. So we're playing a decent amount, but there's people that play games way more often than us, and we would love to play more often. And every game that we play has an opportunity cost, and we kind of are opposite sides of the coin here. My opportunity cost is for 8 to 12 hours a day, I'm sitting in my office three feet away from my board games. My board games are on a shelf in my office, and I stare at them pretty much all day because why would I want to work? And I see all these things that I've bought and have played once or maybe haven't played my copy or haven't played enough and haven't really figured it out. And I, every new game I buy is taking time away from the ones that I know and I know I love. While on the other hand, you, Mark, are kind of the opposite, right? I go back and forth on this one. So in, in my personal life and, you know, in what I, the things I like to do, I do tend to like a lot of variety in my world. I like to eat at different restaurants all the time. I like to try new things on the menu I've never tried before. I don't like going to vacation the same place two years in a row. I kind of like variety in just about everything except my wife. <laughs> I'm quite happy with her. But um, <laughs> beyond that, I do like a lot of variety. So there are times when I look at it and go, well, yeah, I, I could play Caverna for the 12th time. Or there's this other game I've never played before. So could I play Caverna at the op, which I know I love at the opportunity cost of a game that I might love more? I don't know. You know, there's a little bit of fear of missing out there, I suppose, on unplayed games. But that's something I battle with is the other side of the opportunity cost in is playing an established game going to take away the opportunity to experience a new and perhaps best game ever game. I don't know. Right. And I don't really know if there's much we need to debate on air because we've probably had it out so often on the phone that we're not really going to get anywhere. But it's just kind of an interesting thing because this hobby is such a hobby of opportunity cost with all of these new games being released at what feels like an unsustainable rate. How do you really know what's good out there? And do we have enough games in our collection and all this stuff? And it's very frustrating because I am also a person that likes variety and play, but I have 160 something games. You have 180 or 190 something. So even if we were to play just one game a day in both of our collections, we could probably play a game that's new for every single yep. day of the year. Yeah, no problem. Mm -hmm. You know, anyway, if you have some thoughts on this one, tell us what you yeah. think about it. So one of the weird offshoots of opportunity cost is we don't always get a chance to talk about all of the games we've had a chance to play or all of the games that we love. So we thought we'd write that wrong tonight and look back at some of the games we've played this year that are among our favorites. Some of these are our favorite games of all time and take a few minutes and just chat about them and sort of bring a little light to them. So, Jake, I know that the two of us have gone through and put together a list of some of our favorite ones. So why don't you go ahead and roll right into it? No, that's a good pun. That's good, Mark. So for me, this is kind of a list of games that I've played this year, but haven't really talked about in length on the podcast. And I'd planned to play them, but, you know, sometimes it's just you want to talk about some games. So anywho, my first one led in by Mark's awesome pun is Roll for the Galaxy <laughs> by Hui Hua Huang and Thomas Lehman. I apologize. I do not pronounce names well. And so this game is actually one of my favorite games. It's one of the earliest games that I've really fell in love with. So what you're doing in Roll for the Galaxy is it's a dice based implementation of a card game, which is an implementation, which is Race for the Galaxy, which is an implementation of, I believe, Puerto Rico. Or it it's is, a, yes. Or it's like a card version that's similar to San Juan. I don't know which was made first. But anywho, 
what you're doing in Roll for the Galaxy is you're building a little space empire. But the way that you do this is by small dice workers. And so there's a bunch of different colors and that represents different people, whether they be miners or whatever. And they have different faces on them. You're going to roll these up. You're going to hide them behind a little screen and then you're going to assign these underneath different actions. And then you also get to turn on one of the actions. Then everybody's going to reveal and then a certain number of the action will be turned on. So if I turned on settle and Mark turned on explore, all of our explorers are going to operate all of mine and all of his. So it's fun because it's goes the turns work concurrently. So everybody can kind of do the turns at the same time. So it feels like you got a really deep experience in roughly a quarter of the time because you're never waiting for anybody else's turn. And it's just it's a wonderful game. I want to talk about this because there's a few new things happening with it that I have not pulled the trigger on. And I'd like to see if any listeners have anything to say about it. The biggest one being that there's an expansion coming out for it. Is there not? It's already out. It's not coming out. It's already out. So this is the second expansion. Yeah, I know. It's been it's been out for a while. I think it's forty five dollars on Amazon or fifty five. I checked on it this morning. So this is the second expansion to roll for the galaxy. And it's called Rivalry. So the kind of design ethos around this from Tom Lehman's designer diaries is it's three modular expansions that probably could have each been released individually, but they rolled it into one and made it a higher MSRP product. And I really want to try this one. It has those kind of construction little uh, dice on it, and there's a couple other ones too, but I really want to try it because I think it'll breathe some new life into the game. The one issue being that the box is already pretty tight with the first expansion of this game, which is called Ambition. And I just, I'm a guy who throws away boxes, so I really want to make sure it can all fit in the same thing. The other kind of interesting thing about Roll for the Galaxy is the rule explanation length. Yeah, one of the weird challenges I have with this game, I love this game, by the way, is that the rules are really difficult. It's they're, They're not difficult. Actually, it's a pretty easy game. They're difficult to explain because of the fact that it doesn't have a lot in common with other games. So when you explain that, it's often a new experience for players and they actually look at you like you're speaking in tongues. In fact, I've had that experience where everybody just has a blank look on their face after the rules explanation and I have to start all over again, (laughs) explain it slower and give examples. So that's the weird thing, number one. And yeah, like you said, this game might actually take longer to explain than it does to play because the play length is very short on that one. Yeah. I mean, with experienced players, it's maybe 25 minutes, maybe with teardown. For sure. And the third problem being is that many other games actually have the ability where you can play them face up. And if you're in a new player, you can see other people take their turns and just sort of follow what they're doing. Not this game. This game, everything's being done in the blind. And if you're not clear on what to do, there's this, uh, oh, now what do can I do? you help me? Yeah. Cause let's take Gugong, for example. We just talked about it. It was, uh, Dennis's first play of it, but he was last player of the first round. So he saw four people take actions before that. And so he got to see kind of what you do, how everything works and solidified every little thing in his head for that. But in Roll for the Galaxy, okay, there's the rules. And then I start shaking up my dice like it's a cocktail shaker. And then I'm doing my turn and he's expected or she is expected to do that from now on. It's a little spooky. I did teach this to a couple of non-gamers and they are my friend and his very, very, very smart siblings. And I was so astounded because normally I have to have all these rule questions that are going to come up. And these, this, this, I think it was a group of four of us. They just all three of it understood it immediately. And I was like, Jesus Christ, Ben, your family is really smart. It was amazing. I was flabbergasted. Yeah, a lot of times what I'll do is I will actually play the first round of it just exposed so that everybody can see what's going on. Because, okay, yeah, I suppose somebody could look at it and use that information to game which phases are going to be active that turn. But it's the first round. It really doesn't matter. And 
just being able to show sort of open hand what's going on for the first round really helps people that have never played the game before get a good start to it. Agreed. So that is Roll for the Galaxy. Shoot me a note if you think I should buy the expansion. I've had it in my Amazon cart at least three or four times. I just can't pull the trigger. And this is one that for being one of your favorite games, I've literally seen you bring it to game night once and you need to bring it again and explain to me once again what those orange dice do. Well, and that's the whole issue. It's has this rule teach. So I never want to bring it out. Most of my family knows how to play it really well, and I wouldn't need to do more than a two minute rules teach. But I don't want to teach a cold. I just don't want to. It's not fun. I can do it well now, but I'd prefer not to. That's roll for the galaxy. Awesome game. So what's your number one, Mark? Yeah, my number one game that I want to talk about today that I've played a bunch of times and haven't had a chance to really talk about yet is Orleans by Reiner Stockhausen, his masterpiece of bag building. It's really the first of that new genre of bag building that there's since been a couple of other games that have followed suit along with, most notably Altiplano. Orleans is a game where you put a bunch of workers into a bag, you draw a certain number of them out each round, and you place combinations of them out onto a board to do certain tasks. Some of those tasks are get more workers. Some of those tasks are increase your scoring multiplier. Some of those tasks are move your little guy around the board and establish uh, trading houses in different cities or collect resources on there. It plays out in about 17 rounds. Each round has a little event that happens there that sort of keep the game fresh and change it up every turn. And at the end of that, the scoring is literally the goods you've collected plus the citizens you've earned and the trading houses you put out there times your scoring multiplier. Quick one to teach and plays pretty reliably in about 90 minutes and has been a surefire hit for everybody I've taught it to. So, Jake, I know you've you have played this before, but probably not as much as you'd like. God, no. So we have the weird policy where we just don't really play each other's midweight euros because it seems like we'll always split apart whenever that happens. And I, for that exact reason, have not played Orleans more than once. I liked it. I remember thinking it was great. I remember having a good time. I remember saying, this is neat. I'd love to try some of the other expansion content or interesting BGG promos that you've bought and really dig into this, but only played it once. We have a thing where Jake and I are the primary game runners in our game group. So a lot of times if there's two tables, Jake will run one table. I'll run the other table. And a lot of times Orleans comes out for that because it's an easy one to teach and lots of people know how to play it. And thus, Jake doesn't get to play with it. Not a perfect game, although it's awfully darn close. One of the things you can do in the game is that you can cull out individuals from your bag to improve your bag as the game goes on. And that's done via something called the Influential Deeds Boards, where you cull out a worker and you get some bonuses, whether they're citizens, which count as scoring multipliers, or whether you get like a few coins or something like that. In the base game, that is a little bit weak. Like there's a few things that are really important and everybody fights for, but the other bonuses are just not that interesting. About a year or so ago, they came out with an expansion called the Trade and Intrigue expansion that really amps up that board to make it interesting with things where you can trade in goods instead of just players. And you can trade in other things and get benefits like buildings instead of just coins or citizens. So I think that's a must. That's definitely the expansion that I play with all the time because it fixes that issue. And I also have the five player expansion for it so that we don't have the five player concern around that. And being that most of the turns are taking place simultaneously, I don't think that'll dramatically make it longer. But I'm curious to see how that plays out. I don't think I've actually played it at five players yet. Yeah, I'd I'd love to try it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you all just take one action at a turn around the table, right? And you kind of know what guys you have right after you draw. You draw all of them and then you start playing them or do you draw them one at a time? 
Nope. You draw all your guys and then you do a simultaneous planning round. And that's sort of the long part of the turn where you're, everybody's it. planning at the same time how they're going to utilize their workers. After that, it is one at a time, but it is literally just a matter of just taking a very tiny little action. It's a matter of just like, I'm going to move my merchant. <laughs> you just literally just move the guy one space. I'm going to get another uh, soldier. And so I literally just pull a soldier off the pile and move myself up one on the track. So Yes, those things do happen sequentially, but they're all such microscopic actions that they there should, air quotes, go quickly. Got it. So maybe adding a fifth player won't make it drag too much. Interesting. Yeah, I, in theory, I, I'd yes. like to play it again. Maybe it'll be added to the list of games that play well at five because that is such an issue in our group and getting it played again will be nice. I'd like to play it again. I think this probably has the record of game that's been in my bag the most times without getting played. The most mileage. I kind of actually got harassed for it about, well, I know you got Orleans in your bag because I had it in there for probably six straight months. So it needs to start coming again. Agreed. I'm going to give Orleans a mogul score of 3C. It's almost the definition of a midweight euro on that. And hey, it's a bell curve. So even though we have a lot of games in that 3C bin, this definitely is one of them. So Jake, what's your number two? My number two is another venerated Euro game that I have actually probably played the most out of a lot of games in my collection. Um, this was a couple of my roommates' favorite games, and it plays so well at two, we would just sit down after the day and play some of this game. I actually played it too often, and I thought about trading it away because I just had played the absolute crap out of it. I'm talking, of course, of Castles of Burgundy by Stefan Feld. That would have been a mistake, Jake. Throwing it away or trading it? Trading it away. I would have given it to my old roommate, so I would have had access to it whenever I need to. And you have a copy, and I think John has a copy. Kirk doesn't, but I really like well, this game. it's like game. $22. Yeah, it's, it's stupid to copy. not own it. What are you doing in Castle Burgundy? It is a tile placement action dice selection game. Well, you don't really select them. Dice action game. So what you do on your turn is you roll two of your dice and then everybody goes in turn order to do any one of four or five actions with each one of their dice. It's really tight. Your decisions are awesome. There's a lot of ways to mitigate the luck factor, but you have to plan for it. And it's just really, really nice. What you're doing from a thematic standpoint, even though this game's nearly themeless, you are different burgundy royals who are building your estates. And so what you're doing is you're placing these little hexes on your hex board that can go in certain spots. So castles go in one area and then the farm animals go in the other area. But what I love so much about this game is this great, huge point scoring turns. It really feels like you're just hitting the ball out of the park every single turn, especially when you finish something early and you get like 11 points. You're like, God, I'm the best at this game. And it just feels really good. What do you think about Castle Burgundy? Love, oh, love it. It's almost the definition of point salad. Of course, it's Stefan Feld. So you know, yeah, most right. of his games are very point salad -y. Castles of Burgundy has a very big decision space around it. There's a lot of things you can do each turn. And as a result, there are liberal opportunities to min-max your scoring potential on each round. Well, let's see. If I take this dice and do that, that nets me three points. If I do this over here, it nets me four. This nets me two. And, you know, so on and so forth for about 50 different options on there. If you do play this one with a analysis paralysis laden fella, that could drag out a little bit. Agreed. It is really a fantastic game. You know, Fifty Shades of Brown. Love to play it more. I agree. The downtime is an issue, and it also has done the thing where everybody takes their whole turn before they pass, instead of what seems to be the kind of modern design where you take one action until everybody passes, where all the actions plank around. So that kind of does make it a little slow. But if you, this is one of my favorite two player games. 
And I've played it at four and I've played it at three and it's not bad, but it's so good at two player. The downtime just isn't an issue. You can bang through a game in this and. 30, 45 minutes if you're playing slow. One thing is, I think oftentimes I actually will like a Euro game that plays great at two over a game that's designed specifically for two. I don't know why that is, but, you know, given just a pure head to head game, I sort of like a game that if we played it head to head and it wasn't made as a head to head game, it's almost a better experience. I agree. And so I always will reach for this one where it becomes a two player thing, but I need to bring it more often. And I'm hoping there's been some talk about this game, which we've actually cut up, brought up on the podcast for a new edition of it that's supposed to come out sometime this year. And maybe it'll be pretty and updated art. So it'll be less shades of ugly, ugly brown and green. And it'll actually be captivating. I love this game so much. I thought about doing a print and play redraw set in Mars. And I ended up not doing that because I'm lazy. But if somebody out there has a good idea to do that, I will give you money for it. Oh, that's a cool idea. And, you know, if, with with the uh, redraw coming out or sorry, the re-release coming out with the updated artwork and so forth. What a great opportunity to actually share the old copy with a friend that doesn't own it and introduce them to this game. So I think that's my plan. I'm going to give my copy to somebody and upgrade mine. Sweet. What a, you're such a benevolent guy. You know, you're just doing nice things to the world. I know. Sharing Castles of Burgundy. Love it. Castles of Burgundy by Stefan Feld. Jake, where are you rating this one? Uh, I think I'm giving it a... 3C, just in that middle area. I think a lot of these games are probably going to end up being 3Cs now that I think about it. Looking at our list, this is kind of just the midway Euro section. <laughs> kind of is. So I've got a less friendly dice drafting game that I'd like to talk about. That's one of my favorite games and one of my most played games back in 2018. This is uh, Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, and Alain Orban's Qua. We got kind of a city in France thing going on here, Jake. Do you realize that? Yeah, but... It's Euro games, you know, they just love France. Yeah, three in a row. We had Orleans, Castles of Burgundy and Troyes. Crazy. Anyway, uh, Troyes hits a lot of the same notes as Castles of Burgundy and that it is a dry drafting game. Twist there is that the actions that you take in this game are variable depending on how many dice you actually choose to draft to use that. And the cost of those dice ramp up quite a bit. Why does the cost matter? Well, because you're not only using your dice, you actually can use dice from somebody else as well. So we all roll our dice. You have the pool out in the center there. And then I can choose to use one, two or three dice that are either mine or somebody else's. And I have to pay that person for using them. Now, if I only use one dice from whatever combination and I have to buy it, that costs me two gold. If I use two dice, that costs me four gold per dice that I buy. If I use three dice, it costs me six dice. So it can be pretty expensive if you buy all three dice from somebody else. What do you do with those dice? Well. What you do is you play a little area control thing around some of the buildings in there to try to manipulate how many dice you get each round. There are also goals that you try to do that are fighting off invaders or building the church or taking actions that get revealed over the course of the game. And those actions oftentimes are defined in terms of, you know, divisions of the number of pips. So it'll say like number of pips committed towards it divided by three. So if you use three dice, you have a lot of pips divided by three means you could do that action a lot of times. Really super unique. At the end, it's a combination of the points that you've scored and the money that you have, along with a secret scoring condition that's revealed at the end. You have one of six things that's who has the most money, who has the most uh, buildings that they're on, who's fought off the most invaders, that sort of thing. Jake, you're not a big fan of that mechanism. Oh, I'm not. I've been biding my time to just kind of come at it. So I've done some thinking on this, and I think we've actually talked about my complaints about this game on the podcast. 
but I am going to summarize them here. I do not like it in a Euro game. I don't mind trying to deduce what cards other people have, but it just feels hollow when I miss it or when I get it and other people missed it. And I would just rather have it be open. I just don't find it fun to suss out what other people think about this. And it's actually a pretty big detraction from the game. I think sans this sans the secret hidden scoring in Twa, I would probably give this game an eight or a nine. But with it, I give it like a six. It detracts it that much for me. And maybe it's irrational. I'm not saying my statements are rational, but I just really dislike it. It's weird. It's a strange thing. It's funny that 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 strikes you that strong because it is a it's a somewhat minor thing. Like, I mean, it's real points at the end. So let me ask you, what if we played with a what if you were given a cheat sheet with the six conditions and the levels that you have to read? Would that would that help? I thought that'd be okay. It's just it's it's not fun. I feel like it'd be like all of a sudden we're running. This is a weird analogy because it's it's not going to work, but I'm going to I'm going to stretch here. It's almost like all of a sudden we're just running in the middle of a game. It's like, why are we doing this? Why don't we just play the game? Why don't we just go running or play a game? It just I'd rather do a social deduction or deduction style game in a different category. And I don't feel it adds. It's just like this random thing where you have to stockpile goods. And maybe I'm a little butthurt about it because I missed it by one on two of the cards at least three of the times I played this game. It just constantly would be like, oh, well, I missed that. Mark had that and he had that. And I was one point away on two of them and I would have won the game, but I didn't. Okay, so what what if everybody played open face with all of their scoring cards at the end? I would love to try that. I think that'd be great. And I don't think it'd lose much because if it's that much of a non-issue in your mind and you can always deduce it. Why don't we just do it that way then? But anywho, I think this is probably a better conversation for offline. I just have such a complaint with that dumb scoring thing. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if anybody has experience with that and playing it, playing that open face, because, man, I really love this game. And if that's the small sacrifice that gets it fixed for you, I, you know, I think it's pretty easy to figure out. But, you know, if that's all it takes to fix the game for what's otherwise a a magnificent game. Right. Well, I also think we should probably try it with a cheat sheet. A cheat sheet would probably be. 50% of the way there. And then I could probably readdress and see if it should do it. And like a lot of things, this is another one that probably is maybe a downshoot of the fact that I've played this game 10, 10, 12 times and you've played it twice. I think I play it three (laughs) or four times. I know what to look for. And right. You've played it a lot more than me. And we did play this game. Bang, 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 bang. I think we played it like three or four weeks in a row. And it just kind of left this weird penny in my mouth because it was kept on coming out and I kept on having that same complaint about it. And I probably would have rather played other games at that point in time. And yeah. And so I guess I just have this weird thorn in my side about it, about Twa. I do think I won all those games, too. So maybe that is an influencer, too. Oh, yeah. That's the other issue. You're very good at it. And I didn't. We just you and you just dunked on Tyler and I just dunked on us. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, that one just works for me. So anyway. That is Twa by uh, Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier Georges, and Elaine Orban. I love this game. Um, yeah, once again, probably a 3C. This is our Midway Euro category. Oh, we got a, <laughs> in the Moguls. We game. got another uh, Midway Euro coming up here, Mark. All right. What's your number three, Jake? My number three is Imperial Settlers, designed by Maseji Obianski and Ignacy Trevicek over at Portal Games. So this is a re-implementation, I believe, of 51st State. And so what you're doing in Imperial Settlers is your different cultures who are building up card tableaus to try to make your culture the best through the use of specific cards from your deck that are only to your specific faction, and then also cards from the general pool. 
and you're playing them and building stuff to get stuff to then play stuff to get stuff to then play stuff to then play stuff to then get stuff to kill mark stuff. And it's kind of fun because you just kind of keep on plopping back and forth, taking one action at a time. And it's played over four or five rounds. There's three or four rounds, and the first three are the same length as the fourth round. It's just so much more that you're doing because you're building up this tableau of generation and building all these cards and stuff that the first round they actually play, you're maybe going to do like five or six actions and then you run out of resources, but then you keep on building up more and more. And that's so fun because I love it because we play the first time. And we play run round whenever I teach this game. And they're like, oh, is that it? And they kind of think it's going to be like a 45-minute affair and there's not going to be much depth to it. And they're going to keep on playing these little cards. But it's fun-ish. And then they get to the third round like, oh, God, there's so much more things I can do now and being able to do it. But I really like it. What do you think about Imperial Settlers, Mark? You know, this is interesting. I actually played a game with you over the weekend that we're going to actually save and talk about next podcast. But... I actually found a big parallel between this game and at the gates of Lo Yang. Partway through that game, I just kind of went, you know, this kind of feels like Imperial Settlers in a weird sort of way. And by the end of the game, I was convinced it definitely felt like Imperial Settlers. I think the reason for that is both of them have this idea where you can take as many actions as you are able to in the round. You just kind of keep going around and around and around. The big difference there being that in Imperial Settlers, you take turns taking one action at a time till everybody's done everything they can. In At the Gates of Luoyang, you do all of your stuff at once, just boom, 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 and then you say you're done. And in both cases, they're also converting a lot of resources into something else, into something else, into something else. And there's different roles which do different types of actions for you. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of both Imperial Settlers and its precursor, 51st State. I ended up borrowing Imperial Settlers from you to play with my family because there was just no way my daughter was going to like 51st State. And uh, you know what? I was right. Since then, she's been pestering me frequently about when I'm going to borrow that from you again so we can play it more. Yeah, um, it's such a good game. It's kind of the same issue as Castles of Burgundy. I prefer it at a lower player count. Um, There can be a decent amount of downtime towards the end half of those long fourth and fifth turn towards the end there. And so I like to play at a lower player count. And I just don't really reach for lower player count games that often. It seems like we're usually at three or four. So I'd like to play it again. The other amazing thing is I have a great insert for this game, and it's nearly complete, my collection. I have so many of the expansions. But what's interesting about the expansions is you're actually supposed to pre-construct your specific faction deck. And I never, ever do that. Whenever we include a faction, we just do the like, for first time playing with this expansion setup. And I'd actually like to dig into the deck building and deck construction of this game before you play, because I think that'd be fun. But I just don't play it frequently enough with the same people to really get that out of it. That was actually a bit of a hurdle for us to get it out and play it because there was so much in that box that I couldn't figure out where to start with it. It's, well, geez, what's in the base? What do I pull out to just play the base? I I don't know where to start with it. There's so much stuff in here. That's a me problem being that I I was playing with your game and you're very familiar with it. So (laughs) I wouldn't have had that problem if we played together. Yes, absolutely. But I'm a huge fan of Imperial Settlers and I'm going to bring it in my bag for the next couple of weeks because it's a really fun game. I think on the mogul scale, I'd give it a 3D or a 3C, depending on whether or not you're including the construction of decks. Oh, that's a fair point. I was going to argue with you on the 3D and say, it's not that tough. But yeah, if you really got into it enough to build decks, certainly that jacks it up another point. Imperial Settlers, it's great. Go try it. All right. My final choice is a game that 
I have an op- weird opportunity cost issue with because if I play it with you and <laughs> with the people in our game group, then that actually kind of weirdly queers out what I'm do- playing with my family at the time because we're in the middle of a campaign on this one and I don't want to spoil that. So this game is a game that we play more for the story than the game, I think, personally. It's Near and Far by Ryan Lockett and Red Raven Games. You know, I'm the first to admit, Jake, that maybe this the game itself isn't the greatest game on the planet. But man, it's a cool experience. What do you think? So we both kickstarted the game. And this was around the time that we had started becoming gaming friends, I believe, because I think I had introduced mm-hmm. you to Ryan Lockett Games, right? Or Red Ravens, pardon me. Right. This is one of the very first games I played with you. I still really like the game, but for some weird reason, I just don't bring it out. And I think the last time I played it was a few months ago. And I remember talking to Tyler and John after it, like, why don't I play this more often? I have not even really scratched the surface on the level of content in this game. So there's like four different ways to play one like arcade modes. You can just choose any map. There's the campaign mode. Then there's like the beginning intro game. And then there's like a one other weirder version of the campaign mode that's less like constrictive or something. And I've just never done it. So why don't you explain a little bit of what you're doing in near and far to the listeners? Sure. It's a story driven game where there's this giant almanac of encounters that you can have. And there's this big map that's the, you know, air quotes far. That's a world that you're exploring as you're trying to solve your way through this story. But to get out there and do that, you first have to accumulate resources back in the town, which is the air quotes near portion of it. You know that when you're there, you're recruiting other people in your party. You're getting additional I don't know, food and gold and you're hiring pack animals to carry your stuff and you're doing all the things you need to go out and explore a world. When you go out there, you pump up your health and you go out there and keep exploring till you don't have enough health. Then you come back home and pump back up again. Pretty simple. Where it gets really interesting is every time you flip something over, there's an encounter where you have to make some interesting decisions, which sometimes can bite you, bite you pretty hard. And those you generally give you a reward, which you can then use to increase your position in the game. Ultimately, it's scored out by meeting goal cards like you have to collect the right resources in there to pay for certain artifacts. And you also get bonus points for doing a few other things like hiring a lot of pack animals or claiming a lot of spaces out on the board with the little tents that you have on there. I have never won this game, but I still love playing it. (laughs) My wife wins it all the time. So being that she's a really good gamer, maybe there's more game to this and I give it credit for. What I am positive of, though, is that have you had a chance to play with the Amber Mine no, expansion yet? No, that was my next point I was going to hit. Oh, I just so you oh, were nice enough to oh. 3D print me an insert to this game. <laughs> and I said, thanks. That's so nice. You put all my things away and I haven't even grabbed it since. I don't know what it is about this game. I really like it. I think it's one of the better story driven games that I have in storytelling games. But I just like never grab it. I'm really jealous of your family here because I think that's the perfect usage of this game. And I just don't really have a group of people that I play like campaign style games with, especially this light of campaign style games. So, yep, that's the perfect audience for it is with my with my family because it is lighter at the end of the day. But Amber Mines, it's the expansion that came out, oh, probably a year, year and a half after the original game is such a massive improvement to the original game. It fixes so many little things. It's a toolkit style expansion where you can selectively play with lots of different components of it and others that you don't have to. To me, the two mandatory things in the box is number one, uh, the Amber Mines, which is a replacement for this little mini game called the Mines, where you could just basically just go claim little places on there and get a little reward. There was no game whatsoever to it. Now it is actually a little bit of a push your luck, run around inside the mine and maybe get some stuff and have little encounters along the way. And 
it just it it brings a little more story mode into the city itself when you're in the near part of the world. The other part of the game that really makes it interesting is the replacement for the bandits that are out on the board. There are spaces out there where you have to actually fight your way past some bandits. And in the normal game, they're just a steady linear ramp where the first one is four damage, the second one's five damage, the third one's six damage, and so forth. This one has a much more variable setup where sometimes you have to pay resources to get past them. Sometimes you have to do damage to them. And it really makes it a little more thought about how you're going to get past those people rather than just the, hey, I'm really tough. I'm just going to walk past everybody. I would absolutely recommend, Jake, you playing this with the expansion and pulling that one back out again because it really makes it a lot more fun. Maybe this would be a good one to try with Anna. She's not the biggest gamer in the world and... We both really like those exit games, and that's really fun for us. And I bought the Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, and for some weird reason, I haven't grabbed it and pulled it out for the table for when we're hanging out. Because if we're just going to hang out, we'll just chat, and we don't need to play a game. But I just need to get gaming into our relationship. Maybe this would be a good vehicle for that. Yeah, this is actually one of my wife's favorite games. My my wife, the absolute shark who destroys me at every thinky Euro game. Uh, She happens to like this one a lot, as do my kids. In fact, The challenge that I have is they're so into the story that a lot of times they'll rush all the story points in there, whether they're ready to actually solve them or not and get the maximum benefit for them just because they want to hear the stories. And it's tough to explain to them that, you know, maybe you should wait and do that because once you go in there, that's spoiled, whether you get anything benefit for it or not. So I keep trying to impress upon them that they should maybe wait and do them when they're a little more pumped up rather than rushing them all. So Yeah, I think if Anna does like story-driven games, this one's a little on the lighter side, and, you know, it's a little more of an experience to play rather than a real thinky game. Got it. I'm going to have to try it. Also, I would say this one plays great at two. I would absolutely 100% play this at two, no problem. I think I've played it at two. It's... This is it's funny because this whole conversation we're having right now is just like me being very confused about why I don't play these games more often because I really, really, really like them. And I just keep on not playing them. It's the yeah, shiny I Jake. just bought too many games or traded for too many. I have too many new things. I have 12 games on my shelf of shame. That's just too high, Mark. That's far too high. That is our list tonight of three games each that we both look back at and said, you know what? We've played this a little bit this year and we really haven't had a chance to talk about them. So hopefully by us talking about them, they're becoming front of mind for us and to you. And we'll get a chance to play some of these again. Sounds great. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our episode. Hopefully we'll be under an hour. seems like we've been nudging up longer than we're supposed to be, Mark. We haven't done a good job of keeping this an hour podcast. Ah, We're doing all right. It was a good conversation. Absolutely. Always fun. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your night, Mark. You too as well, Jake. Good night. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.